Hi, welcome to Living Water Bible Fellowship's audio sermons. It's our prayer and hope that you'll be encouraged and uplifted by the preaching of God's Word. Stick around after the message to hear more about how to contact us. One of the causes of that problem is conflict in ministry. In America, the church is being devastated by conflict. 18,000 to 24,000 pastors leave the ministry each year, primarily due to conflict. Every single Sunday, between 70 and 100 churches are meeting for the last time. We know that at least 1,500 pastors a month, on average, are leaving the ministry. And we just felt like it was so necessary that we would help pastors stay in ministry, build healthy relationships, and build healthy churches. My thought is that if you can understand this information, not only the toxic church side, but the antidote side, it's going to affect you more than just allow you to prevent toxic relationships from happening in your church. It will renovate how you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. These common problems which you see in a lot of different churches really happen subtly and are right in front of your nose. So uh, learning how to identify these things as well as how I might be contributing unknowingly was really helpful. We believe that these seminars are essential to the growth of the kingdom and we've seen the results that they bring and we think that leaders from all churches would find benefit through this seminar. If you happen to be a pastor or ministry leader or a missionary, we would like to strongly encourage you to participate in this ministry. Come and take one of our trainings. We know it will help because the reality is is most pastors and most people in ministry today have not had the kind of training to help them to prepare for conflict in their churches or ministries. If you would like to be a part of this ministry, we would appreciate your consideration. The reality is is that uh, our biggest need are funds to help train individuals to share this ministry, not only in America, which is our primary focus, but also throughout Asia. If you'd like to be part of our ministry, please contact us at toxicchurch.org. members of your church have been for some years and been overseas in the mission field. As a matter of fact, in May we complete 47 years of ministry. And that's hard to believe because I'm only 42 years old, but we got married when, I, when Faith was 13, so if that gives you some idea. I want to welcome, uh, thank you for your welcome. I want to ask you to thank your Pastor Jerron, special guy. You know, we run into pastors quite regularly, quite frequently, who are very, very jealous about their pulpits. Well, Jerron doesn't do that. And I appreciate very much the opportunity to share with you the text we're going to look at today. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to continue where Jerron has asked me to go, completing the text in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. I'm going to go from verse 12 to verse 19. Follow along while I read. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory 
and if God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I'm going to ask you all to ask a question of yourselves this morning. And as I ask this question, I'm going to invite you not to raise your hand or answer it verbally. Ask this question within the quiet of your heart. Are you suffering right now? Whenever I ask that question, I know invariably there are people in the group who are suffering and perhaps no one knows about it. It's just happening. It's a very common event and I want you to know that if you could not say, yes, I'm suffering right now, well, hang on, it'll come. And maybe, even if you're not suffering right now, you've suffered in the past. You know what suffering is like. Well, I want you to know something. This text is a doozy because it gives us a great deal of insight to the nature of suffering, not only the nature of suffering, but what we can do to prevent it from happening in our lives. Now, Peter, as John has very clearly indicated, he, he's talking and writing at a time in which he's about to go into great persecution. The only time Peter was ever in Rome was before he died. He's in Rome and the Emperor Nero is ruling and he's doing some terrible things to Christians. He's beheading Christians. He's crucifying Christians. He's sowing, sowing them in the skins of freshly killed deer and throwing them into pits with wild dogs and lions. And his great trick is to tie Christians up, put them on a stake, soak them in pitch, put the stake in the ground, and as he rides through his imperial garden at night with a torch in his hands, he lights the Christians to light his way and delights in how they are shrieking and dying in the pain of the flames. But I want you to know something else about what Peter is saying. The reality is, it's a strange thing, because as he writes to people, he's saying very simply this, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. You hear what he's saying? Don't be surprised, meaning we can be surprised by it. We can't always be ready for what's about to come because suffering can come on us very quickly like the clap of a hand. And not only that, he says... Don't be think it's strange, because it's not a strange thing. It's normal in the Christian life. What a strange thing for him to say. But the strangest thing yet is who he's writing to, because he's writing to five provinces of Turkey. And you know something interesting about the story of Nero and his persecution? It never got outside of Rome. And it was only for a short period, less than a year. So the question becomes, when he's writing to these people in Turkey, what is their circumstance? What's happening to them? Well, you know, persecution didn't come to them. A slight persecution in 30 years from Domitian, a little more in Trajan, about 50 years, a little more under Marcus Aurelius, about 100 years. But the real, real persecution didn't come to the Emperor Decius in 249. That's almost 200 years after Peter wrote to these people in Turkey. So the question is, what kind of suffering is he talking about? 
Now, certainly he's considering the persecution, the physical persecution that is coming, but he must be talking about something else. The reality is we live in a world today in which persecution, physical persecution, is very common. We literally could tell you hundreds of stories of what we've seen overseas. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. There's one young man we knew who pulled the bodies of his colleagues and family members out of the rubble of a church in Turkey that had been bombed. There's one man we consider a great hero of the faith. We call him Moses, not his real name. He's a, he's a Korean missionary who lives on the border of North Korea and China. Even being in China if itself is dangerous enough for a Christian, but here what this guy does. He sneaks into North Korea, leaves his wife and daughter behind. He sneaks into North Korea and he plants churches and shares the gospel. Do you realize if he's caught, it's automatic death? And his wife and daughter are always waiting in that town immediately on the border just north of North Korea. And they're waiting. They're not knowing if they'll ever see their husband and father again. They cannot communicate with him. They don't know when he's coming back. And they don't know if he's coming back. That's suffering. And suffering for the Lord. And one of the things we learned when we were teaching in Singapore in the seminaries is if someone comes anywhere where the students are congregating, a classroom or any place, chapel, if someone brings a camera, even a phone, and they lift it up, you'll immediately see people do this. Because they can't have their pictures go out anywhere to let anyone know that they are in a seminary. It's too dangerous. And the reality is, as we see these things continually, did you know today, if you are a Hindu or a Buddhist and you become a Christian, you're going to be disowned by your family. And in India right now, Hindus are killing Christians and Muslims. Did you know if you become a Christian in a Muslim country, the Islamic Sharia law says that you are an apostate and you must be killed. It is not unusual for fathers to kill their own sons and daughters if they become Christians, and it happens quite regularly. In fact, it's happening right now. The news media will never report this to you, but I'm telling you it happens, and it happens with great regularity, even in our own country. So the reality is persecution, physical persecution is a reality, but the other truth is this. It's not just that type of persecution that Peter is addressing. Let me share with you what he's talking about. It begins way back with Adam. You remember Adam and Eve and the story in the book of Genesis? How many of you remember that story? Good, I got your attention. Okay. Do you remember what Adam said when God confronted him about eating the forbidden fruit? Do you remember what he said? He said, the woman you made, made me do it. Wonderful excuse. Do you hear what he's saying? Well, she made me do it, but after all, you made her, so you're responsible. The whole world's responsible. She's responsible. You're responsible. The only one not responsible is me. Wonderful little trait he demonstrated. What was he doing? He's blaming his own sin on other people. You know, the book of Genesis clearly portrays a cycle of this occurring because the reality is when a person starts to do that, it's addictive. They develop a value system which, in which they believe their whole reason for existence is pointing out the evil of others and correcting others. 
It's addictive, and it goes and it grows in frequency and intensity. And as we see in the book of Genesis, it grows from one generation to the next generation. You go seven generations from Adam, and you go through a guy named Cain who killed his brother, and you come on Lamech who kills not once but repetitively and even has two wives. The result was the flood of Noah because each generation got worse and worse. And these individuals who value themselves on the basis of correcting other people have some very sophisticated names. We call them antagonists. Sometimes they are called paranoid personalities. But I've got a simpler name for them. They're bullies. You ever run into a bully? These are the people who produce suffering, and they focus on, guess who they focus on? You ready for this? They focus on you and on me. You know why? We're safe. You know why we're safe? Well, first of all, our very existence offends them because the fact that they know we are Christians is an offense because they know that our presence demonstrates their behavior is wrong, even if we don't say anything. If we say anything, it gets much worse. So their attention is directed at us. You know something else interesting about Christians? We're not supposed to take revenge. We're safe targets. We're easy victims. And so the reality is, is this occurs quite regularly. A type of suffering that is incredibly intense, and I want you to know something. In America, we have a peculiar little slice of this horror, which is very, very serious. It's called the collapse of the American family. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of how this works. Several years ago, a pastor shared with us this story. It was heartbreaking as we listened to it. He told us about his daughter. He had five children. Four of them were living for the Lord, and four of them were living very godly, honorable lives. But they had one daughter who in teenage years began to behave immorally, and the immorality grew. And as the immorality grew, they tried to stop her. They could not. She ran away from home. They got her to come back. And finally, when she was about 25 years old, never, ever stopping this immoral behavior with four children... She attacked her parents and said, you caused all of this. You were always abusing me, and I want nothing to do with you ever again, you or this Christian stuff. That's exactly what he quoted her as saying. And her four children, they hate you. We're never going to see you again. And when he told us the story, it had been nine years since he'd seen his daughter or his grandchildren. Anybody a grandparent? Can you imagine not being able to see your grandchildren? That's suffering. Nine years, and the only time they tried to contact her, she threatened them with a lawsuit. And they had to give up. A lady I knew when I was a pastor, her name is Marlene, not a real name. We'll just call her Marlene. She was very faithful in church. She was always serving the Lord. She was very active in doing things in the church to help other people. But she also never had her husband with her. And she shared with me as her pastor that her husband was a person who hated her and hated the Lord and always mocked her whenever she left for church and would do anything he could to, take, to make sure she didn't take their two children to church with her. But she did. 
She even told me that he would on occasion beat her, and he beat the children quite regularly as well. And then this character did something very much in the likeness of his personality. He uh, committed adultery, abandoned her, and their children. And when he divorced her so he could marry another woman, he accused her of causing the problem. He said, you always nag me. You always threw this Christian stuff at me. It's all your fault. It sounds like Adam, doesn't it? Have a familiar ring? And this woman was suffering. You know why? Because even though she knew she did not do anything wrong in her marriage, there's always those nagging doubts. What if I had? What if I didn't? Those types of thoughts were constantly there. She's suffering, and the children suffering as well, because as they grow up, you know what happens to them? They have trouble trusting Jesus because they couldn't trust their daddy. And even if they become believers, they have trouble believing Jesus will ever answer their prayers because Jesus was like their daddy who wouldn't take care of them. That's suffering. And the reality is, as we think about things that we go through in this life, the truth is, as we say, well, we're not persecuted the way those people in Asia are. Oh, yes, we are. There are bullies in this world, and they constantly come after us. And I want you to ask a, ask a question. How many of you know a bully? Sometimes we work for them. Sometimes they're in our government. Sometimes we're married to one. And guess what? Sometimes they make their way into the church. Peter has some interesting things to say about suffering. It's like the whole book is immersed in the subject of suffering, getting ready for it. He says in chapter 2, verse 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether the kings in authority or governors are sent by them. Why would he say that when he's about to die? The king's about to kill him. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. Really? You ever work for a bully? In chapter 3, he tells wives, if your husband disobedient to the word, just don't say a word back. Get ready for suffering. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, listen to these verses. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to spend the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. What's he talking about? It's in the passage we're, going, we're looking at. In chapter 2, verse 20, I love these words. For what credit is there if... When you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if you do what is right, you suffer for it. This finds favor with God. And in the text before us, he has some remarkable things to say. Not only don't be surprised, not only is it the norm, don't think it's a strange thing, but he goes on in verse 13 to say, rejoice in this. Rejoice? Rejoice? And in verse 19... He says, when you're suffering according to the will of God. Did you hear that? According to the will of God. Do you hear those words? 
it is ordained by God, ordained by God, that certain events take place in our lives that produce suffering. And you don't have to be in Asia or Africa. It happens right here. It's part of the humankind. And I have a question to present. I ask of God, why? What on earth could cause the God who loves us to allow us to go through times of suffering? Even say it's ordained by God. Rejoice in it. Don't think it's strange. Don't be surprised by it. Why would God say that? Why would God do that? And the reality is not just in Peter. It's all over Scripture. And I want you to know something. There's a secret in this text. There's an answer to that question. And I want you to pay close attention because it may allow you to understand the suffering we go through and how to respond to it. Listen carefully to what he says. In verse 13, after telling us we share in the suffering of Christ, he says we'll be exalted with Christ. Rejoice in that. And in verse 14, he says something very profound. He says... The spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Hear those words? How does glory rest on us? Well, we're going to be exalted with Jesus. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. There's something going to happen in heaven that we're not going to see till we get there. There's something very important about that, but there's something else. He says not only the spirit of glory, but the spirit of God rests on us. Now, how does that happen? In Matthew 11, Jesus said these words, you know them, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Now, I want you to notice something about that verse. How do we get the rest of Jesus? When we come to him, why do we come to him? Because we're weary and heavy laden. You catch the connection? Do you see that? Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why do we come to him? Because we're weary and heavy laden. Why does he allow us to be weary and heavy laden? So we'll come to him, and he gives us rest. You follow that? Does that make sense? You understand the connections? It's the same principle in Philippians chapter 4 when we read, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Man, you're fast, Rose. <laughs> now, how do you get this peace of God? Surpasses all comprehension. How do you get that? Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And why do you go to God in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving? Because we're anxious. Follow this very carefully. You see the connections? God allows suffering in your life and in my life because it does something very profound in our lives. It drives us to the feet of Jesus like nothing else ever will. There is nothing on this planet will draw us closer to Jesus than suffering because when you're going through great suffering and you realize there's nothing you can do about it, nothing will help, then you realize if I can't do anything, I know someone who can. 
and suddenly we are at the feet of Jesus and we are clearly there because he allows us to go through certain trials and difficulties in this life that force us to his feet. And a strange thing happens when we come, come to him. We get rest, we get peace, which means what? We're not suffering anymore. You follow that? You have the rest of God, you have a peace which surpasses all comprehension. You're not suffering. And you don't get there until Jesus allows us to be confronted with some great difficulty. That's why he ordains it. But there's something else in this text which is critically important to catch. He said, don't suffer because you're a murderer or because you're a thief or because you're a meddlesome person. There are meddlesome people in church, but not a lot of murderers and thieves. Don't suffer for that. Suffer for doing what's right. Suffer by sharing the suffering of Christ. And then he points out in verse 17 and 18 a very profound truth. He says very simply this. We suffer first. Evildoers suffer next. Now I want you to notice the connections, both in verse 17 and 18. There's a clear connection. When we suffer Something happens. You know what happens? We draw close to Jesus. When we draw close to Jesus, guess what Jesus can then do? He can repay those who cause the pain. Think about it this way. God allows evil people to get away with it, seemingly, because he's going to produce good out of it. He's going to draw us much closer to Jesus. But as soon as we are close to Jesus, he no longer needs evil people to draw us close to him. So he can then deal with those evil people, and that's exactly what he does. I'm going to read from the 37th Psalm. I'd like to ask you to follow along, verses 12 and 13. Listen to these words. I love them. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. The Lord laughs at the wicked. Think about that. Can you picture God laughing at people when they scheme against you and me? He thinks it's so funny because they think they're going to get away with it. They don't get away with it. The reality is, is the only thing that controls whether or not God is going to act is in verse 19. You know what that is? We must entrust him. When we entrust him, everything changes because suddenly we don't need those trials any longer to draw us close to Jesus because we're there. We're entrusting him. So therefore, verse 19, entrust him. Give the whole matter to him. And when we do that, he corrects the situation, he changes it. Now, much of the material that I share comes from our experience in ministry, and much of what we do is administering to pastors. So let me share with you a couple stories. One pastor told me the story about how he'd gone to a large church, was called to the church. And unbeknownst to him, when he got there, the interim pastor before him wanted the call to be the pastor, but the church wouldn't call him. They thought he was too immature. They thought his sermons were too simplistic. They wanted, didn't want him. They didn't call him. But, you know, unbeknownst to the pastor when he got there, the interim pastor was holding Bible studies secretly in his own home with people in the church. Really? This interim pastor arranged with the group of people he had as close friends to attack the senior pastor and force him to be resign, to resign. 
And the pastor was grief-stricken. He'd been attacked by a bully for the sake of nothing else. He, he, he got a bully in his way, and it hurt him. But he drew close to Jesus, and Jesus took care of him. He was doing fine, but you know what else happened? When that interim pastor saw that he had arranged for the senior pastor to be pushed out, he presented himself as the new pastor, and they called him as their pastor. And guess what? Within a couple of weeks of him coming in to be the senior pastor, he was caught in adultery in the church office, and he was fired. And he should have been. Can you hear God laughing? That's what he's doing. He's laughing. Another story of a pastor, of a pastor who had an associate pastor who asked the senior pastor, please, would you recommend me when you leave this church? And the senior pastor said, you're not ready. I, I, can't, I can't do that. You're not there yet. And the associate pastor so much wanted the senior pastor. He, he arranged to develop friendships with a few people who didn't like the senior pastor. You know, there's always somebody who doesn't like the senior pastor. I mean, he preaches too long. Or he preaches too short. Or he wears a tie. Or he doesn't wear a tie. Sometimes they're even bald. Not that I'm speaking... By the way, you have a perfect head. <laughs> My point is, there's always a reason you can find people who are critical of the pastor. There's always a reason to be critical of the pastor. I can always name something about someone, and if I want to gain a group of followers, all I have to do is find the ones who don't like the bald heads. And all of a sudden, you've got a problem. Well, this pastor, this associate pastor, arranged for the senior pastor to be forced out of the church. And the associate pastor presented himself as the next candidate, but the church didn't want him. They didn't feel he was ready. Sound familiar? So he had his friends stand at the door of the church on Sunday morning with a clipboard and a petition to sign so that they would make the associate pastor the senior pastor. You, you know what happened? He got fired. And he should have been. Can you hear God laughing? Nero is quite a character. He's so colorful, I just can't leave anything out. So don't worry, I'll be done by 1 o'clock. That'll be sooner than that, 12.50. Nero had his own mother murdered by stabbing in such a gruesome way, I can't tell you about it. He had his first wife murdered. He murdered his own second wife by kicking her to death while she was pregnant. He believed he was the most gifted showman on planet Earth. He could sing, he could do poetry, he could act, he took all kinds of acting parts, even acted as a woman in some parts. Great musician he thought he was. Get out of my way, Luke, I'm Nero. He went around the whole empire and various municipalities. He would require all the citizens to come to an amphitheater. All were required to come to watch Nero. Everyone had to come and no one could leave. There are stories of women who had to come and they were in labor and they had to bear their children in the amphitheater because they weren't allowed to leave. Wonderful guy. He wanted to be a, build a great palace for himself and 
Rome. But there was a problem. Rome was very congested, very crowded. It was the largest city on earth at that time. Over a million people, huge by ancient standards. So he had a way of clearing the city out. He burned it down. He burned down two-thirds of the city. He led, this fire led to the death of tens of thousands of people, and hundreds of thousands of people were homeless. He really did this. He did it in the year 64. And before the ashes cooled, he had massive amounts of labormen and materials brought in to build his golden house, his great palace. It was to be a palace of 300 acres. One palace, that's a big palace, 300 acres. He had a giant statue of himself built outside the, the palace. It was 98 feet tall. It was a bronze statue. Think he thought a little bit of himself? I don't think there are any buildings that big in Alamosa. I don't even think we got water towers that high. That's a 10-story building. The palace was equipped with moving roofs so that people could gaze out of the stars or a nice spring day, and it closed back in. The whole palace was water-piped, but it wasn't, they didn't have water in the pipes. They had perfume, and it would spray out pleasant perfumes so that everybody could smell nice things all the time. This palace cost an enormous amount of money. They had to find a way to, to gain the money. We had a simple way of doing it. He confiscated the property of rich aristocrats and nobles all over the Roman Empire, virtually devastated North Africa, but all over Rome he did the same thing. He took all the money of many Roman senators, anyone who would stand against him, and he built it, but he had to do something else. He had all the coinage of Rome, both silver and gold. He had all the coins... Their silver and gold was drained from them in order to make new coins. He literally created a system in which the coins had less value. Do you know what that did? It caused massive inflation and destroyed the Roman economy. In the year 67, the people of Rome were fed up with him. They started saying things like, this guy... How could he have all the, the tools and all the material there when the ashes are still warm? How could he do that unless he knew it was coming? He had to start that fire. So he realized the heat was on, so to speak, and he said, look at Peter. You know what Peter said? He said in chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter did it. The Christians did it. So he began this great persecution of Christians. And as this persecution was going on, the golden house, 300-acre palace, was being finished. And he said, finally, I can live like a human being. But guess what happened to him? The people of Rome didn't buy it. Rather than attacking the Christians as Nero attacked them, they became very concerned. They began to pity the Christians. They felt sorry for them. They thought Nero was attacking them unmercifully and unfairly. And mobs of Romans decided they were going to put an end to Nero, and the mob was coming to the great golden house and the praetorian guard, the elite soldier guard that was supposed to take care of the emperor, deserted him and left him alone in his 300-acre palace, and he had a slave slice his throat before that happened. He said, the world is losing the greatest showman of all time. And he died.
Now, Nero did some pretty severe things. Think about it. He destroyed the city of Rome. He destroyed the economy of Rome. But it even got worse than that because, you see, he came from a line of Caesars. It started with Julius Caesar. He was the last one. There was no successor. He literally ended all the Caesars. There was no successor for him. He destroyed not only the city, not only the economy, he destroyed the politics of Rome. He destroyed everything. Immediately after he died, there was a fight, for constant fight. There were four emperors in one year. In one year, there were four emperors. There was one Roman general named Vespasian. He was in Jerusalem, laying siege to Jerusalem at that time. And when he realized what was going on in Rome, he had to get back to Rome or there would be no one to get back to. So he left the siege of Jerusalem in the hands of his son, Titus, and he went to Rome. And he settled things and stopped the total destruction of the Roman Empire. You know what he did with the Golden House? He tore it down. You go to Rome today, there's no remnant of the Golden House except one little basement area. And you know what he did? He built on the ruins of the Golden House, many of the structures that we think of today. He built the Colosseum where the Golden House was. When Peter died, he was told he's going to be crucified. And Peter knew these words. He knew how to entrust himself to God, verse 19. He had no concern about his own life, and the story goes that Peter said, I do not want to be crucified the way the Lord was crucified. Crucify me upside down. So he was crucified upside down. I want you to think about this. Peter, who do we remember and who do we malign? Can you hear God laughing? I had a busy week this week. Had to work six hours. Well, it was eight. I had a call from a pastor this week, the associate pastor at the same church, couple elders of the same church, number of calls, many hours on the phone. And here was the story. This pastor, a young pastor, been in the church 13 years, the church doing very well, about 400 people in attendance, had grown well under his leadership, had several staff members. having absolutely no indication of any problem of any kind whatsoever, was met just a week ago, seven days ago, as he stepped out of the pulpit, two elders said, we, we need to see you in your office. So he had to dutifully follow them into his own office. And they gave him a letter which said, this is signed by the elders and a group of people in the church. We want your resignation. We don't like your leadership. He was devastated. And as I listened to the story from he, the associate pastor, and a couple of the elders, I saw the same pattern I've seen so many times in so many churches. One of these bullies got in and began to organize a group against the pastor. Something about him they didn't like. He didn't know it was even coming. Nobody knew it was coming. All of a sudden it was there. And they had a meeting on this last Wednesday night. And in that meeting... The pastor read his resignation, and the church erupted in anger. Close to fistfights, two groups. The church is being split in half. And they're asking me for help, but it's too late. 
Because the bullies know if I'm brought in, I'm going to point out the bullies. Now, I won't point fingers at them, but I won't need to. As soon as I describe the process and how it works, they'll put the characters in play, and they'll know what's going on. And all of a sudden, the bullies are unmasked. We've done this before. We know what happens. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because of the suddenness of what can take place. But I want you to listen to the words of this pastor as I talk to him. He was sharing with me his grief. He was weeping. And he said to me, how long will this pain last? And I said to him, it will last until you entrust the matter to Jesus. Here's why. You and I have control over evil. You know how we have control? As soon as we entrust God, the reality is, is he's free to correct the evil. Realize the power you have? That's why in verse 19 of this text, Peter says, entrust yourself when you're suffering according to the will of God. Entrust your souls to God. Does this make sense? Do you understand the power you have? Do you realize that when you're suffering for Jesus, you have power over those who are causing the problem by entrusting God? Isn't that strange? How many of you get this? Raise your hand. Only two. Another sermon. You catch what God is doing in your lives and you run into bullies? They're out there. Sometimes they're in here. I pray not. But the reality is, is God gives us power over them. In Asia, now the early church didn't get this one. You get it, free. The most significant problem in Asia is pastors and missionary directors attacking their staff and the members of their churches. It's very common. You think about it, you know why. Asians give a great deal of respect to authority, and they will not violate authority. Which means if an authority is corrupt, they get away with it. And as we teach these principles to them, I always conclude by giving them one simple point. You always have more power than the person who's harming you. You know how you have more power? Because you have the power to leave. And when they get that, They realize they can leave, they can entrust God, and the problem will go away. And guess what? It works. No, the Lord works. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful to you that you give us some of the problems and pains of life. Not to be a surprise, not to be strange, but to be the norm of our lives. And we know that when you're bringing those things to happen in our lives, you're giving us the opportunity to entrust you with the pain because we can't do anything about it, but we know you can, so we give it to you. 
And we know that when we do that, Lord, you, you promise to do some remarkable things like give us peace, give us rest. Your spirit rests upon us. It's a blessing, you say in verse 14. And you also tell us very plainly, Lord, that when we entrust you, you will take care of those who have harmed us. What a miracle. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you work this way, that you draw us to yourself through evil, and then you correct the evil. Help us to learn to entrust you day by day, moment by moment. We purpose to do that right now. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. The gospel according to the Bible is that Jesus Christ, who was and is the eternal God, took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, died for our sins on the cross, and rose from the dead three days later. He then ascended to the Father's right hand, where he sits making intercession for his people, and right now he is establishing the kingdom of God on earth. You can enter into a saving relationship with God by repenting of your sins and placing your full trust in Jesus' life, his death and resurrection on your behalf. In Christ, you will find forgiveness, acceptance, freedom, peace, hope, and a future. If you would like more information about Christianity or Living Water Bible Fellowship, visit our website at livingwateralamosa.org. God bless.